At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non-toxic, non-flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco-friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. Welcome back to the HVAC Know-It-All podcast, guys. We have another good podcast for you, another great one. We have Jim Bergman back, and the last time he was on the podcast, we discussed checking units with no gauges, with no gauges, and I told the story of why I, through my career, have had to do it that way. Jim tells the story in a different manner, where he's developed an app called MeasureQuick, where we can do a non-invasive test to check systems and their performance without gauges. Okay, I've done it kind of like this manual way by feeling and touching and all that and getting a sense for the HVAC six sense, getting a sense for how a machine is supposed to be running over time, just through experience. But Jim discussed measured quick the app and how we can do it with the app and non-invasively without putting gauges on a system. Anyway, this podcast is not about that. This podcast is about combustion analysis. Now I don't do a ton of it, not a lot at all. I do a little bit of combustion analysis because I don't take care of a lot of boilers and stuff like that. I got a few um, I visit once in a while. But it was good to have this conversation with Jim because I asked him some questions that I wanted to know the answer to and I bet you guys probably would have those same questions. Anyway, very knowledgeable guy. Okay, we're gonna talk combustion analysis. We're gonna get this done. Let's get to Jim. All right, Jim, we're recording. How's it going today? Uh, really good. Awesome. So um, we're going to have a chat on combustion analysis. And I mean, I'm glad we're having this because I don't do a heck of a lot of it. I do a little bit here and there, but not a lot. So, I mean, you could probably clear some things up for me as well. As Same with everybody else that's, that's going to listen. So during during a combustion analysis, like what are what are we trying to achieve by taking the snapshot of the flue gas? Well, I mean, I mean, there's a couple different things you're trying to achieve. The, the primary things are, you know, in, in our safety and efficiency. Whenever you're looking at an appliance, obviously, first of all, we want to make sure it's safe. And then, um, you know, with a, especially with 90 plus appliances, if you're going to get that, that 95, 97% efficiency out of them, they have to be tuned properly. If, if you don't take the time to set them up to, uh, properly, you may as well not even sell them. You, know, you, you may as well just sell a straight 90 plus because the, the higher the higher the efficiency goes on a furnace, the more precise the setup's got to be to get the um, uh, engineered operation out of it. Cool. So safety, yes, obviously, and then efficiency, and, and we can get those things with a combustion um, analyzer. So, as far as the setup of a combustion analyzer goes, like how would you recommend we set it up? Like turn it on first, expose it to the atmosphere before we stick it in the flue or like, like what, what would be your, your go-to method to set these up? So the, the, the first thing you got to do is, is um, obviously uh, calibrate the analyzer in, in outside air. Analyzers all make relative measurements. They're not an absolute measurement. So they're always, you know, when, whenever you're 
putting it through uh, fresh air, what it's doing is it's nulling out any background CO uh, that would see. So like in the case of carbon monoxide, if we're in like New York City and, and the CO is, um, you know, let's say six parts per million. You know, if you looked at their pollution index, they'll show you their CO just from the cars in the city. If it was six, six parts per million, what, what we would be doing is zeroing that out of the analyzer. So it's there, it's absolutely there. But we're, what we're looking at is CO above ambient. So oh, yeah, sure. we have CO in the house, but that's the same CO that's outdoors. And so we're gnawing that out. And now we're looking at is an increased CO uh, in the in, for an increased CO in the house over what we'd have in the ambient air. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so this question just came up actually about an hour ago. I was just reading through some posts. Somebody was asking what the acceptable, and I think I know the answer, the acceptable amount of CO in a home is. And I'm pretty sure I read in the past that it, I think it was ASHRAE that recommended that nine ppm is, is as high as you want to see in a home. Yeah, well, that's the maximum allowable level, and zero yeah. ppm is as high as I'd want to see in my home. I mean, yeah. it's uh, there's absolutely no reason we should have CO in a house. You know, uh, it, it, if it's properly ventilated and properly, um, you know, if, if it's if it's all if it's all properly ventilated, and the appliance is properly vented and things are working correctly. Uh, we will absolutely not have an issue with, um, you know, with uh, uh, anything, you know, we wouldn't have any CO in the home to begin with. It'd be, it'd be right at zero parts per million all the time. So, you know, when, anytime I look at a home and I see anything above zero PPM, you know, I'm typically looking for the source because you always want to identify where it's coming. It could be cooking, it could be stove, could be you have smokers in the house, could be a lot of different things, but you should understand where that source of CO is coming from over the ambient air and, and try and eliminate it if all possible. Okay. So this might be a redundant question, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, and then I want to go through some, some, some readings that you find on an analyzer like O2 and CO and, and efficiency and all that. So what are some good or best practice methods when using an analyzer, like for, from taking it out, of, or, or storing it, um, maintaining it, and, and, and starting it up and sticking it into the, the furnace, obviously, for, for some analytics. So, the, I mean, as far as the analyzer itself goes, you, you want to keep the analyzer at room temperature if at all possible. Analyzers use chemical sensors. The chemical sensors will drift with uh, temperature changes. So, you know, ideally, this is a test tool that you're going to, you're going to take inside with you at night, you know, just like your cell phone, keep it up in the front of the cab with you. So it stays warm. Um, you know, they, you always, they have, they, the analyzers tend to get moisture in them from uh, flue gas. So you don't want that moisture to freeze in there. And uh, a lot of analyzers too have like inherent protection built in that, you know, they won't even let them work until they warm up. So you know, if you want to avoid that, that nuisance of having to wait for the analyzer to warm up, then the best thing to do is just keep it warm to begin with. But Analyzers inherently do not like cold, and you should not leave them in the cold. And obviously, if you're like testing a rooftop unit or something like that, you you can test for short periods of time in the cold. But analyzers are are designed to be short-term measurement tools. They are not continuous measurement tools, so um, you know you need to treat them as such. And one of the most important things is to keep them dry, uh, meaning that keep the 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 flue gas path dry. So that means, you know, after you shut your analyzer, or before you shut your analyzer off, let the pump run for several minutes just to, to draw fresh air through it and exhaust it out. Make sure you get your water trap and keep that empty all the time so it's not uh, pulling any, any water into the analyzer because that will kill the O2 cells. 
um, and you know, make sure that you're keeping it warm. It's better for the batteries. It's better for the analyzer. Um, you know, like I said, uh, pumps can freeze. You can just cause all kinds of little issues when you get that thing um, uh, changing temperature all the time. So that's probably one of the more important things is to make sure that you're um, uh, not letting the analyzer, you know, get much below uh, freezing if ever. Okay, cool. So I'm, I'm going to ask you these two questions because these come up a lot. So first one is, can you tell if you have a cracked heat exchanger by sticking your analyzer into the supply duct and seeing if you have any rise in CO from, from the air, like outside of the furnace and in the supply duct? Do you think that's a good method? Because a lot of people use this um, as their go-to and say this is one of the ways they check for a crack in a heat X. Well, you, the only way to find a crack in a heat exchanger is to, is to visually uh, find it. What you can find with a combustion analyzer is symptoms of a crack. So any time that uh, you see a change in the O2 or the CO when the, when the, um, when the analyzer is running, you know, especially like when the blower starts up on the furnace, that's a pretty good indication that something is happening that is affecting the combustion process. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have a, a crack in the heat exchanger. It could be you have some other issue going on, like uh, condensate maybe backing up in, in, a, uh, in a trap, or you may have you know, a system that uh, has, has air that is getting pulled backwards up a trap on a 90-plus furnace. Uh, you, may have, you may have something else going on there that is um, affecting the combustion process, but not necessarily a, um, not necessarily a, a cracked heat exchanger problem. So when we, when, when we say that, what we mean is, yeah, it is a tool you can use to identify a potential problem, but the only way to physically know that you have a crack in the, in the heat exchanger is a visual inspection. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree hundred percent. That was the second question I was going to ask you whether or not you should be looking at your O2 and CO when the blower starts to see if there's a change in it to maybe go and do some sort of further inspection mode. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, it, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it, it is a tool that is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just like when you have a fever, it doesn't necessarily mean you have an infection. It's an indication you have an infection, right? But it doesn't mean uh, with 100% certainty that, uh, that that fever is caused by that. I mean, you could just be overheated. You could be in a hot attic and, and have an elevated body temperature. That doesn't mean you have an infection. It just means you're overheated. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so we can't say uh, just because we have a shift in our O2 or CO that definitively we have a heat exchanger crack because you know, and I know, being in this field for as long as we have been, that things happen at coincidental times. It's like, it just happens to be at the time the blower came on that the condensate started to back up at the same time. Well, why is that? Well, because when the blower came on, all of a sudden we started making massive amounts of condensate, and then we backed up in the condensate drain, and it just happens to be, it looks like there's a crack in the heat exchanger because we're seeing the CO start to rise at the same time the blower came on, but we didn't stop and think that my flue gas just dropped down dramatically in temperature when my blower kicked on and started condensing water in my secondary heat exchanger, right? Yeah. So you have a combustion problem, but it's not a cracked heat exchanger problem. And so again, you have to go through and you have to look at things. Like one of the things that I always have guys doing a 90 plus is if you suspect you have a cracked heat exchanger is to remove the uh, exhaust and inlet, uh, you know, just tape them off um, 
and then uh, put a manometer, like a Testo 510i or something, in the, in the heat exchanger with a blower off when you start, zero out the manometer, turn the blower on it, and if the, if the, uh, if the heat exchanger starts to pressurize, when the blower kicks on, that's a good indication you have air leaking in your heat exchanger, which obviously you'd have a crack there. Uh, Lennox used to have, use that method on their, um, on the Lennox pulse furnaces. If you remember, they used to do that, uh, you know, the magnahelic or manometer, but that's a, a really quick and easy way to determine if you have a, a void in the heat exchanger or a hole in the heat exchanger. Um, and then you can, you know, like I said, uh, eliminate that as, a, as, as, a, as an issue because if we had air leaking in, we'd pressurize. If we don't have air leaking in, we won't. If we had air leaking in, it would affect the combustion process. If we don't, it won't. So it's just a uh, simple things like that. You can't, you know, too many guys say, oh, I, I saw this. It's a failed heat exchanger. Mrs. Jones needs a new furnace. And uh, sometimes it can be further from the truth. And then when somebody comes out and you go get a second opinion, you know, you're going to put a little egg on your face because you, uh, you jump to conclusions rather than uh, doing your due diligence as a technician and making sure that, you know, that the heat exchanger was uh, in fact failed. And this goes back to, you know, I've, I've heard over and over and over again in my career. And I, and I, you know, you just, if you think you've got a crack, spend the time to find it um, because otherwise it's something else. And we, and I don't know how many times I thought I had a crack in the heat exchanger and it ended up, ended up being something else that was affecting the combustion, you know? So there's a lot of things that happen by coincidence. You know, we run out of combustion air in a room. Uh, you know, it just, you just can't, you just can't rely on the analyzer to 100% of the time definitively say, yes, that is a crack. Do your due diligence and test. And I, I really, I really like that test. I really like that test you brought up, just capping off the, the inlet and the flue and putting a manometer on, on the, the, the heat X and starting the fan. I never thought about that. That is, that is actually pretty genius. And as far as the, the Lennox Pulse, I, I've never worked on one because I don't do residential. So, and, and I know that's kind of like a, a polarizing topic. There's guys that hate them. There's guys that love them and, and all that kind of jazz. But I mean, that is a very good test. So anybody that's listening is, is going to, I'm sure they're going to appreciate that. I did want to ask you, and I read some of this so far. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but you per, like writ, wrote a, an article. I don't know if you call it an article or a white paper or whatever it was, but it's like 40 pages long on, on combustion analysis. Did you not? And it's online for free on the true tech tools website, right? Yeah, there's one there. There's a newer guide I just put together for AccuTools. It's called uh, the AccuTools uh, Combustion Quick Start Guide. Okay. And that's that's only about eight pages, I think, eight or ten pages. But that's um, the the one I wrote for Testo years ago. Is um, it's still used all over the country. A lot of guys love that that guide because it it was more or less uh, a lot of um, dispelling the myths of combustion analysis. There's a lot of there's a lot of different training you're going to see out there. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, guys that I disagree with on certain topics, but at, at the end of the day, although I disagree with them, what I, what I am extremely pleased they have done is bring awareness to the industry because the things we disagree on are more process and procedural things. Um, I don't think any of us disagree on things that would put somebody in harm's way necessarily but uh, how we achieve certain goals and the, the ways that we do it, uh, you know, there's guys that I disagree with. But over, overall, the, the most important thing we've all sort of pulled on the rope together is to bring awareness to the HVAC industry, especially in the States, that you need to start doing combustion testing. I mean, 
you guys in Canada, at least there's some, uh, some requirements that guys do this, but in the States, um, you know, if you can write your name on the back of a business card, uh, you can be an HVAC contractor in some places, you know, there's no licensing, no permitting. Other places are more stringent. I mean, Ohio, you have to have a, you have to have a license, uh, Florida, you have to have a license, Kentucky, but not every place is like that. And so you know, what we've been trying to do is really, uh, bring the awareness that if you work on gas appliances, you need to be testing them. You need a combustion analyzer because in the, in the, in the words of Rudy Leatherman, uh, who was with Backrec at the time, he said, if you don't test, you don't know. And I, I think that's probably one of the most um, important things he ever said to me, you know, was that because uh, you just cannot look at the combustion process and determine if it's working or not without having some kind of a tool to analyze it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. If, if you don't test, you don't, you don't know that that's a huge statement because too many, there's too many techs out there that make, that make comments on things that they've never seen touched or, or had the opportunity to try. And like <laughs> and let expel furnaces. Yeah. They have their opinions on them, <laughs> but they've never seen them or used them or whatever. So, I mean, that, that is, that is a huge statement. If you don't, um, you got to, you got to test to know. Um, so I was going to go through the individual readings that you'd see on a combustion analyzer, but I think that maybe what we'll do is instead, cause it, it, I think it touches on a lot of them, like is the definition and of stoichiometric combustion, what it is and how that like affects like access air and, and, uh, oxygen and CO and all that. You want to talk on that for a bit? So one cool thing that Yellow Jacket has done over the years is put together a pretty cool library of YouTube videos on different things like piping practices and so on and so forth. And I posted one on Facebook today actually that had a lot of good piping practices within. And they're using some tools that a lot of you would consider being older tools, but a lot of you guys are still using those tools and a lot of you guys still love those tools. So next time you're on YouTube, just go in the search bar I was going to say Google, <laughs> go in the search bar of YouTube and just look up yellow jacket training videos because there's a lot of them and there's a lot of good content there. So last week you may have seen my post on social media, but I was using my Testo smart probes to gain a baseline on some freezers I take care of at a pharmaceutical plant. Now these are just, um, residential stand up kind of freezers. You open them up like a fridge, but they're freezers. And they're using them just for ice packs, nothing hugely important, just ice packs that go into boxes when they want to keep things cool. So there's no service ports or anything like that on them. And, and uh, the condensers are actually embedded in the sidewall of the freezer, so you can't access them or anything. So I was trying to do amp draw and discharge line baseline testing. So if there's ever a problem, I can check against it to see what um, it was recorded or what it was recorded as in the past. You know what I mean? So I was using my smart probes for that, which is a really, um, it's a really good use for them to, to be honest with you, because you can, you can log that screenshot somewhere and keep it safe, or you can record it right on the back of the freezer. If you want, every time you go for a visit, whether it's quarterly, semi-annually, yearly, whatever that may be. So listen, there's some Cool stuff going to be coming up in March for myself. I'm going to have a booth at the CMPX show that's in Toronto. Okay. Um, that's in March. I don't remember the exact dates right now, but it's the last week in March, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now, Navac's going to have a booth there. 
And the really cool part about that is Andrew Greaves is coming up. From what I hear, okay, hopefully that continues to, to be the plan going forward. But myself and Andrew Greaves are going to get together at that booth and and hang out and um, and meet a bunch of you guys and, and talk NAVAC stuff, which I think is going to be very, very cool. So if you're in, in the Toronto area, try to get out there. If you live abroad further away, I mean, if you guys can make it, that would be very, very cool. And you guys can hang out with Andrew and myself. And to top this off, guys, True Tech Tools, remember, 8% off the purchase with promo code KNOWITALL, except for FLIR, TESTO, and FLUKE. But if you guys want that TESTO um, preferred pricing link, again, the offer is there. There is a TESTO preferred pricing link. Just hit me up on one of the channels, Instagram messaging, Facebook messaging, email, and I will gladly give that to you. This segment of the podcast is brought to you by Harago, a trades-only platform helping you find the right job or the right candidate. Harago.com, best in trade. So, yeah, I mean, stoichiometric combustion is just what we consider perfect combustion, which means there's no excess fuel, there's no excess air, 100% of the fuel is consumed. And if you think about your, your oxyacetylene torch, it's as close to stoichiometric combustion as we can get. There's, you know, uh, all the fuels consumed, all the oxygen's consumed. Uh, we're not supplying it with any excess air. In other words, there's, there's uh, you know, all the oxygen comes from the torch tip, all the gas comes from the torch tip. And we're really, you know, there's, there's, there is maybe a little bit of secondary air around the flame that's being used for combustion. But I mean, I think you could probably burn, you know, take an oxyacetylene torch into a vacuum and it would probably still run because you're supplying it with the oxygen that it needs for combustion, right? It's not coming from the air around the flame. It's coming from, the, the oxygen's coming from a tank. Yeah. And so, you know, when you look at that combustion, there's no excess air, there's no excess fuel. That is as perfect as we can get. Now, when you, when you think about uh, what's going on in a burner, we have a Venturi and in the Venturi, uh, we're we're shooting a stream of gas in there, and, and that stream of gas is inducing or or uh, pulling in air behind it, right? Because it's a it's a Bernoulli effect. It's like if you're standing there waiting for a bus, you never feel the bus coming, but when the bus drives by, you feel the the wind getting pulled behind it. And when we shoot gas in a burner, the same thing happens. The gas entrains air behind it, and that gas and air mix together. Now the the gas and the air when they mix. The, the distance is so short in the burner that they don't have time to mix thoroughly. So you get some air that goes through the combustion process that's unused. You get some gas that's, that's unused. And so what we have to do is we have to supply excess air to the burner because we want every gas molecule to touch an oxygen molecule so that we have complete conversion of the carbon in the fuel over to carbon dioxide. And so we always supply about 50% excess air to the burner. In other words, 50% more air than it needs so that we make sure that all the, all the fuel is consumed because we want to, again, we, want, we don't want to have that intermediate conversion of carbon to carbon monoxide. We want to get it to completely convert to carbon dioxide, CO2. Big difference between CO and CO2. CO2 is a, just a, you know, it's a greenhouse gas. It's a, uh, uh, you know, it's a byproduct of combustion. It's not, you know, we have CO2 and pop for crying out loud. It's not something that's going to hurt you. Obviously, yeah. you could drown in CO2 if you got a, you know, if you had a room full of it and you didn't have oxygen, it would it displace the oxygen in the air. But CO is carbon monoxide. 
and CO is, is a toxin. And the reason CO is a toxin is, a toxin is your, your body can't tell whether you're, um, you have O2 in your bloodstream or CO in your bloodstream. It, it, it just displaces the, the, uh, the, the oxygen in your blood. You end up actually dying from oxygen deprivation when you have CO in your blood. And so um, we always want to make sure that, you know, that we're, we have that complete conversion because if we get any flu gases in the house, then, um, you know, we're, we're not going to kill somebody. So think about, you know, in the States here, I'm sure you guys do in Canada too, you have ovens and stoves and things that burn in your home that are not vented appliances. Yeah. They're used for a short period of time for cooking, you know, hour, two hours, three hours. You know, maybe the biggest day of the year in the States, we use them as Thanksgiving when the oven's running almost continuously. Yeah. All we supply enough uh, air, oxygen to that stove that it doesn't really produce any um, carbon monoxide to any appreciable rate. You might get a little bit when the oven first starts, but then eventually that oven gets hot and then uh, the CO goes you know down should approach zero ppm. So getting back to stoichiometric, um, we're always going to supply more air than the burner needs. Now, excess air is necessary. But it's also, it's, we also consider it a necessary evil because too much excess air is going to go, it's just going to cool the flame down. It's called, mm -hmm. it's called flame quenching. Yeah. So there's a balance between safety and efficiency. And in, in your world, in the commercial world, where we're, um, we're, we're actually uh, uh, testing the appliance on a monthly basis or weekly basis, depending on what it is, some, some big stuff on a daily basis or even hourly basis on uh, huge process equipment. We're continually trimming the oxygen on the burner so that we have, um, you know, we get that excess air down to, you no, know, maybe 20% excess air, and we're running on a, on a fringe of just having enough oxygen to uh, to assure safe combustion in the appliance. But we don't want, you know, because excess air is so costly, and when especially when you're talking large process equipment, because it cools the flame down, it robs it of the, the burner of work. It's so costly that um, that it, it's it's cheaper to do testing. Uh, you know, and at minimum in a, in a commercial process, we'll do what's called a summer and winter tune. We'll adjust it for the air density changes because the air is less dense in the summer than it is in the winter. And we'll trim down that O2 in the, in the winter time so that we, again, are not wasting a bunch of, uh, of the heat that the burner produces by, you know, sucking it up with excess air that's going to the burner. So it's, you know, that highest efficiency ideal range is, is uh, typically, you know, we're, we're going to see our, our when you think about the combustion efficiency process, as far as we're concerned, as residential commercial service technicians, it's complete conversion of all the all, all of the carbon in the fuel to carbon dioxide, right? It's not stoichiometric combustion, which means no excess fuel and no excess air. We're always going to err on the excess air side, typically between 25 and and 50% uh, excess air. When you get into like a two-stage appliance, it could get up even to 100% excess air because you just can't as carefully control the excess air in the appliance on two stages. But mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're always going to see that um, uh, some excess air in the burner because our goal is uh, as much as is efficiency, it's also safety. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. And and um, like I I've I stuck a, an analyzer in a unit heater uh, last week or two weeks ago. And it was 400,000 BTUs. The, the manifold, the gas pressure in the manifold was, was bang on 3.5. And I was getting 72.7% access air. And I called the manufacturer and I said, do you have any specs from, from factory that shows what this thing's supposed to be running at? And they're like, no, 
we have nothing. If, if you set your gas manifold pressure right, I mean, everything should be fine. And that, that was the, <laughs> the answer that I got. So I didn't really get anywhere, but that was my, my access error on that particular appliance. What do you, what well, do you think about that reading? I mean, 77% excess error is totally fine. The problem is that you're probably underfired a little bit on the, on the burner. What you get is there's a huge disconnect between the guys that do technical support and the guys that do engineering. Um, and uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, again, they're erring on the side of safety. So, um, you know, the fact that you had a, on an 80% efficient appliance, you had a little bit of excess air in there, it's, it's really not going to uh, change the efficiency of the appliance all that much. Because, you know, for every, I believe it is about 50 degree reduction in stack temperature, you pick up about 1% efficiency. Until you get in a condensing range, then it's, you know, it's a little bit, you don't have to drop that much more stack temperature because we start condensing water, which is an additional bonus. But overall, you know, if, if you could cut your excess air down and, and let's say you, you trimmed it down 20% and you picked up, a, you know, your, your stack temperature dropped by a degree or two, uh, what did you really save, right? I mean, it, it's, 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 um, it, it's not monumental. The, the most important thing when we're tuning appliance, the most important thing is not manifold pressure, by the way, it's input. Um, and you'll, you'll start seeing, in fact, I just saw an ICP product the other day, a Heil furnace that actually had a manifold pressure of 3.2 to 3.8. It had a range. First time I've ever seen that. Okay. 3.5 is a nominal manifold pressure. Mm -hmm. Typically is plus or minus 10%. So on commercial stuff, like if you're working on a, on a big uh, overhead heater like that, what, what I would do in that case is typically pick up what's called the sublet meter pipe it in line temporarily uh, when I'm doing the initial furnace commissioning. Just, you know, just put the meter in line, uh, clock the meter right there at the appliance to make sure I have the input correct and then take the meter back out and note the manifold pressure that needs to be at to have the, the uh, input correct. Because then again, in a, uh, commercial buildings, big stuff like that, a lot of times you just can't commission that appliance properly. But three and a half inches is the nominal, not the, not the, uh, Exactly. The other way you could you could do it is you could uh, you know uh, watch your manifold pressure, make sure it stays within the range, and, and trim down the O2 to your like 50% excess air. So as long as you were in that 3.2 to 3.8 inch water column range, and your O2 was within, or and your manifold pressure was in the allowable range, that's the other way you could you could make sure your your uh, your uh, input was correct. But you'd have to know what the manufacturer designed the excess air. Uh, reading to be typically is 50% excess air, but some appliances it can be much lower. Like power burners can be as low as, like I said, 20, 25%. And then like a two-stage appliance, you might have a, over 100% excess air. And when the information is not available, uh, you know the, the right way of doing it is just clock the meter and get the input. I mean that's that's the that's the best way of doing it if you can. Cool, cool. That is good information, Jim. So I'm, I'm, I got to get back to work in about five minutes, but I want to ask you one more question before we go. So on a, on a combustion analyzer, you're going to see CO uh, and PPM. Then you're going to see CO um, AF, which stands for air free, correct? So what is the difference between those two? Oh man, I always thought CO AF stood for another thing, but what all right. <laughs> no, you ever hear people say, you know, uh, uh, vacuum rated as, um, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going a completely different place. I'm glad you corrected me. Oh yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, you, you got me there. <laughs> so yeah, CO air free. So again, this goes back to um, it, it's it's CO air free. When we remember we we talked earlier about we have to have 
uh, excess air going to the burner. We have yep. to, right? Well, what that excess air does is it dilutes the CO in the flue gases. So um, because we have all this air in there, it's just diluting it. So think about, you know, um, uh, adding water to your pop or something or adding water to your coffee, you're diluting it, you're, you're adding something to it, right? And excess air dilutes flue gases. So what, what it is, is just a ratio of the oxygen to CO so we can determine how much is diluted it. So your CO air free reading basically normalizes the, um, the CO and the flue gas either to a percentage of oxygen or to 0%. So typically we, we normalize to either uh, zero or, or I think it's 2% oxygen there's uh, um, on there, but it's just uh, so that everybody's looking at CO apples to apples. So when we say uh, 400 ppm is a max allowable CO in the flue gases, that's 400 ppm CO air free. You should not even be looking at your CO reading except to protect your sensor on your CO analyzer. So if your sensor's rated at 1000 ppm, watch your CO reading to make sure you don't overrange your analyzer watch your CO air free reading to make sure that you don't uh, exceed your allowable CO in the stack. CO air free is the most important reading on the analyzer when it comes to safety because uh, again, if you have a ton of excess air, like let's say you, instead of measuring in the undiluted flue gas, you measured after, after your draft hood, um, that would still would show you a correct CO air free reading because it would just normalize it for the extra oxygen that's getting pulled up into the draft hood. Or if you measured in the, you know, on the, in the undiluted flue gas, that would show you the same thing uh, because now it only have a small amount of secondary air for combustion that you'd pick up. Um, but that's, that's the key thing. CO air free is uh, uh, just to normalize it for the effects of dilution. Okay, cool. So if, if I open up a manual of a boiler and in that manual, it said maximum allowable CO is 400 PPM because that's what I read in a boiler last uh, I can't remember the make of it, but that's what it said in the manual. Is That would be referring to the air-free CO? That's always air-free, yes. Okay. All right. That that clears that up for me. Um, so, Jim, I got to get back to work, but I, I got to thank you, man, because that was a ton of info. And those those two articles, where can we find the one that um, – the old one I talked about and the AccuTools one, where can we find those? So, if you just do a search for AccuTools, A-C-C-U-T-O-O-L-S, Combustion Guide, uh, That'll pop up. It's on the AccuTools website, but if you just do a Google search for it with what I just said, you'll find it really easily, and then you can okay. just download it. It's a PDF, which is really nice because you can download it into your uh, right into your uh, tablet or whatever and have it side by side when you're doing your combustion testing. And that one, I actually go through some really good um, pictures of where to do the testing, and then also what ex what your expected combustion test results would be. And the other one is if you just searched for Testo, T-E-S-T-O, Combustion Guide, and maybe Jim Bergman, B-E-R-G-M-A-N-N, -N, uh, you'll, you'll find that online. Uh, there's, TrueTech Tools has a copy of it. Um, I'm sure you can find it on their site, but uh, between TrueTech, in fact, you could probably go to TrueTech to get both guides, but um, you know, if you Google search for those, you'll find them pretty easily that way. So that was pretty good, wasn't it? I enjoyed that conversation. And what I'm going to do for you guys is that that combustion analysis paper or or ebook or whatever it is it's 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 a it's a number of pages long it's not just a couple pages i'm going to leave a link to that cuz i found it on true tech tools when i was reading it so i'm going to leave that same link the true tech tools link in the podcast notes so you guys can reference it and read through it because it's got a lot of good information in there 
and we talked about stoichiometric combustion and I believe there's a chart showing where stoichiometric combustion lies within the chart and what's before and what's after it so anyway guys that's the podcast Jim thank you very much again for your knowledge and your time but I'm out guys I gotta get into this building and do some service calls happy HVACing